as the children are going out now to uh, Corner Pebble. And if you have very young children, there's a, there's a small area, our normal room that we would have for creche is being renovated at the moment. So if you'd like to take your small children, there's some soft toys there, older children to go up the back with Danica and Lauren. Um, and if, as they're doing that, could you please open your Bibles to Job chapter 28. You'll also find uh, in the middle of your corner post, um, we also have uh, a sermon outline. You might like to take that out. You'll see that it's right in the middle of your corner post, right that big section there. Um, the reason why we make it so um, predominant or prominent um, is because we really find as Christians, as evangelical Christians, that we believe God speaks to us through his word. And so we come to really the central part of our meeting together this morning as we come to hear God's voice speak to us through his word. Or if you want to be a little bit more cynical, um, you'll find out how much longer the preacher is going to speak for. Although that can often be not as accurate as you think. So Job chapter 28, I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 28. And this is God's word. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses, for awe in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft, in places forgotten by the foot of man. Far from men, he dangles and sways. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock, and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires, Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. 
The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumour of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Let's pray. Father, as we come and sit at your feet now and come before your throne of grace, we long to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. We thank you that that word which we just read, which is so many thousands of years old, humanly speaking, is just as relevant to us today as it was when it was first written all of those years ago. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes, that we would see Christ in your word, because in him is all the treasures of wisdom to be found. Father, bless us, we pray. Help us to block out the distractions that are crowding out our thoughts. And Lord, help us that that might be that holy hush that descends upon us that we might know that we are meeting with you, the true and living God, and that you yourself are speaking to us by your spirit through your word. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most difficult passages, I think, in the entire Bible to understand is found in the book of Colossians. It's what Paul says in verse 24 of chapter 1. If you still have your Bibles there, open it up with me and have a look. By the way, just a quick word of warning. My introduction this morning is going to be a little longer than usual. The passage I'm referring to is where Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, just exactly what does that mean? One thing we can be certain of is that he doesn't mean that Jesus hasn't done enough to save us from our sins. You only have to read the opening chapter to the book of Colossians to figure that out. Back in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, Paul clearly states that trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection alone saves us from our sins. He says there, For he has rescued us 
from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does Paul mean when he says that he is still filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, significantly, the term afflictions is never used in the New Testament to describe the work of Christ's atonement. That might seem a little pedantic, but whenever the redemption of Christ is being referred to, Paul always uses the terms blood or cross or sacrificial death. He never uses the term afflictions. It's why Jesus is often identified as the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah, which we looked at last week. But here's the thing. In preaching the message of the gospel, Paul is actually embodying the truth of that message as well. And he's doing that in his own flesh. In other words, the gospel is not just the content of our ministry, but it also, divine, it also defines the very nature and shape of it. For Paul says that while the atonement that was achieved by Christ is complete, there are still more afflictions to go through in making that salvation which was achieved through his redemptive sufferings made known in the world. It's what various theologians have termed or referred to as the messianic woes. That according to the Old Testament, for the dawning of the future age to occur, it's like the whole world has to go into labour. In fact, that's precisely the metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 8. Remember, he says that all of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay. Now, this is going to sound a little weird and maybe even uh, complicated, but just hang in there with me for a minute. Because all of this is actually connected to the purpose of redemptive suffering in the book of Job. You see, the Bible says that all of creation is going through right now the pain of childbirth um, so that the glorious new age of the Messiah will finally appear. You could even say until the true uh, and final Mother's Day arrives. Because just as there are a limited number of contractions before a baby is born, although you don't really know how many there are when you're going through it, so too there are a limited number of sufferings or afflictions to go through before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Indeed, there's even a sense in which by suffering for the gospel, then the return of Jesus is made all the more imminent. The Apostle Peter puts it like this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says in verse 11, 
since everything will be destroyed in this way, he's just talked about everything being destroyed by fire, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You see how suffering is actually integral to God's saving purposes in the world. It's also why Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, that he rejoices in what he has suffered. Because Paul knows that every affliction that he goes through is like entering into the pain of the next contraction that will bring to birth the new creation and it will bring the return of Christ ever closer. Whenever Angie was going through labour, she would often look across to me as she would tear up my shirt and she would say, I wish we could share in this pain together. <laughs> and quite honestly, I was really happy not to. But there was no other way to make the baby arrive than unfortunately for her to go through another contraction. The incredible thing that the Bible says, though, is that by participating in the affliction associated with the spread of the gospel, you actually absorb the pain and the suffering which is necessary for in God's plan for the Messiah to return. Just as there's a set number of people that God has chosen in the world to save, so too there is a limited amount of suffering in order to bring the gospel to them. Even that is under God's sovereign power and control. When both of those figures have been reached, Paul says, then the, Lord, then the return of the Lord Jesus Christ will occur. Now, these are deep theological truths which we're covering this morning. But why I mention um, all of this is because of this. Our suffering is never wasted or in vain. Our suffering is never wasted or in vain. Whether it's what Campbell went through a few years ago when he was unjustly brought before the Human Rights Commission here in Tasmania, or whether it involves something similar to what happened to the person of Job, we have to realise that our suffering is playing a part in the cosmic purposes of Almighty God. And you can't get more encouraging than that. What is it then that we can learn from Job's final, and I think best, speech? Well, as you can see from your sermon outlines, it all centres on what he says in chapter 28. And it's one of the most popular passages in the entire book. The chapters either side of that follow a similar kind of trajectory. Uh, they're not linear, but they're, they're structured in the shape of something like an arrow. As you can see, chapter 26 talks about how God is unimaginably great. And then chapter 7 to chapter 27, about how we are all intrinsically flawed. It's identical to what Bildad said back in chapter 25. But the difference is whereas Bildad concluded that man is but a maggot, in his words, Job fixes his gaze upon heaven. 
And in his focus on wisdom, he gives us one of the most precious gems of philosophical insight ever written. What I want to do this morning, though, is I want to do a deep dive into the text of chapter 28. Because what Job says here is just so important and rich theologically. Now, there are three main parts to what Job says here. The first is found in verses 1 to 11, and it's concerned with how secret wisdom is. Job gives the extended metaphor of underground mining to explain what he means. One of the keys to the section is what he says in verses 7 to 8. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it. No lion prowls there. It sounds straightforward, doesn't it? And even innocuous. But what Job is saying here is pretty profound. Because the falcon is the animal which soars above, high above all the earth and it sees everything. We even proverbially say, don't they? They have eyes like an eagle or a falcon. It's the supreme creature which soars over all the earth. And likewise, the lion is the king of the beasts. He's afraid of nothing. And all the other animals in creation cower before him. But the thing is, neither one of those two animals, neither the falcon or the lion can perceive, let alone discover, the preciousness of what lies directly under their feet. They don't even know that it's there. That there is gold and silver and all kinds of precious stones. Mankind alone, in contrast to everything else God Almighty has made, understands that there is untold riches in the earth. And we go to great lengths to uncover where they are, don't we? For when we do, we discover things beyond our wildest imaginations. I'm actually part of a Facebook group which um, posts pictures of all of the different minerals there are from around the world. And each one is just so stunning and beautiful. In fact, I discovered recently that there is a lapidary club right here in Hobart in Liverpool Street. Now you might be wondering, what's a lapidary club? That's just a group which focuses on the cutting and polishing of precious stones. But here's the thing. How much more precious is wisdom? Unlike mining, it's so secret that no amount of human endeavour can uncover where it lies. You have to stop and really reflect on what Job is saying here. Because while it's easy enough to understand, he's put his finger onto something which is philosophically profound. And that is, because wisdom is secret, you have to go in search of it. It's one of the things which makes us unique from everything else in all of creation. For we alone have been created in the image of God. And because of that, we have this inbuilt desire to worship. Augustine famously wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, 
and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. In other words, only those who are image bearers are concerned with uncovering the secret of wisdom. Indeed, we're the only ones in all of creation who are aware that the search for wisdom is worthwhile. And this is something which should especially make someone who doesn't believe in God or Jesus stop and ask, why is that so? Why should we be concerned with finding out what life is all about? Because if we're just stuff, if we're just random, you know, a random combination of chemicals, then why does anything that we do in our life right now matter? Speaking philosophically, it just doesn't make sense logically to even ask that question. The famous psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, once said, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is an irreductible part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. Friedrich Nietzsche even went further and he said, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. He who has a why to live can bear almost anything. Tragically, Nietzsche died without hope and even more, sadly, without meaning. For he rejected the secret as to where wisdom was to be found. Whereas in comparison, Viktor Frankl actually found it. But the question is, it, it doesn't matter really, because really the question is, so where is wisdom to be found? Because if wisdom is in fact so secret, then it's also crucial that we have to go and search for it. And this is what Job turns his attention to next in verses 12 to 19. Job asks, where can wisdom be found and where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend it. It cannot be found in the land of the living. Like Nietzsche, Job realises that people don't value wisdom anywhere near as much as they should even though it's more precious than gold or jewels, people don't care. Because there is something fundamentally wrong with each and every one of us. In the movie, you remember Forrest Gump? The character Lieutenant Dan asks Forrest, have you found Jesus yet, Forrest? To which Forrest simply replies, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. Now, we laugh because we can all easily relate to why Tom Hanks's character isn't interested. But it's because in our sinfulness and rebellion, we actually want God to leave us alone. We want to pursue our own loves and passions without having to acknowledge the one who made and sustains us. Forrest Gump, for him, it meant securing the affection of his childhood sweetheart, Jenny, which was tragically always just beyond him. And even when they finally do get together, what happens? Not long after that, she dies. 
it's a great example as to just how hopeless life is without a relationship with somebody who is greater than ourselves. Because while wisdom is secret, it's something everyone should be searching for. We know it's important. We know wisdom is great. But the tragedy is we'd rather be fools. All of which brings us to Job's third and final point, And that is the source of wisdom is God himself. Job recognises that only God himself knows where wisdom dwells. Uh, but even more than that, it's only through knowing him that we can truly become wise. Verse 28, he writes this. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. This statement stands as one of the great take-home truths of the entire book of Job. In fact, all of the speeches which have been made by Job and his three friends would be hard-pressed to do better than this one verse. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil, that's understanding. That's precisely what someone like Nietzsche could never bring himself to acknowledge or to do. Because he wanted to retain the place of God for himself. A friend of mine posted on social media recently a comment by the well-known atheist Stephen Fry. One day Fry was asked what he'd say if when he died God turned out to in fact be real. His response was, how dare you? That kind of reply, though, only demonstrates a heart that is full of pride. Which wants to live life on its own terms and do whatever it likes. Which would rather be a fool than to be wise. What does the psalm say? The fool says in his heart there is no God. Whereas Job rightly understood that humility and wisdom inextricably linked, that you can't have one without the other. In particular, that a healthy fear of the Lord always leads to repentance. The Westminster Confession of Faith has something really helpful um, to say at this point. I hadn't noticed it until recently uh, while I was on the Federal uh, Church and Nation Committee. It's a group of people in the church, our denomination, which looks into ethical issues and how they might particularly impact the Presbyterian Church of Australia and beyond. Anyway, we were having a discussion, a very interesting and um, complicated discussion about whether it was right for someone to be able to call themselves a gay Christian. This is obviously a highly controversial point today, especially as it involves and relates all around somebody's identity. We came to the conclusion that any adjective that you put before the word Christian gives it a legitimacy. And so it would be wrong. So, for example, you would never call yourself an alcoholic Christian. Or you'd never call yourself, would you, a covetous Christian? Or what about if you were to even say, call yourself a greedy Christian? 
I don't think any of us would ever use that adjective to describe ourselves, even if we all struggle with that temptation. Instead, we realise that we should name our sins rather than be named by them. The Westminster Confession puts the challenge even better and it says this in chapter 15, if you want to look at this yourself sometime, paragraph 5. People should not be content with a general repentance, it says, but everyone is obliged to aim to repent of their particular sins particularly. What a great insight. We should never just excuse ourselves to go, well, I repent generally, God. But we should have the courage, even the humility, to repent of our particular sins, particularly. You see, the truly wise person not only fears God, but shuns evil. They turn from their sin in repentance and faith in God's forgiveness. And not just in some vague or general way, but as the confession says, particularly. If you're feeling distant from God right now, that your fellowship with him is not as intimate or close as it has been in the past, then let me ask you this question. Have you repented of your sin particularly? I came across uh, a quote by the Puritan divine Thomas Watson this week which really challenged me. He said, So dear is sin to a man that he will rather part with a child than a lust. So dear is sin to a man that he will rather part with a child than a lust. Whoa. Isn't that challenging? I'll never forget listening to a sermon once and the preacher quoted a verse from Psalm 66 verse 18. Psalm 66 verse 18 and it says this. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to my prayer. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to my prayer. It was like someone had turned up the volume and God was speaking directly to me. And I immediately realised that I was excusing all kinds of sinful behaviour and attitude. And if truth be told, I was even secretly cherishing. But in so doing, it was really affecting my fellowship, my relationship with God. Prayer had become a burden and the joy of the Lord was just not there like it once was. And that was because I was grieving God's Holy Spirit. Might you not be doing the same? That you're willing to name your sin and then earnestly repent of it. Could that explain why coming to church sometimes feels like more of a burden than a blessing? Someone once quipped, if God feels distant, guess who moved? 
You see, it's no good blaming others or your boss or let alone your spouse. If you're feeling spiritually flat, then maybe it's because you're cherishing sin. You've allowed the love of this current world to crowd out your love for Christ. And it's not even necessarily that you're committing the sin. <laughs> it's that you're secretly cherishing it, you see? It's that you're not willing to renounce it and let go. You see, suffering has a great way of showing us, friends, who or maybe even what is the most important thing to you. Because it's all too easy to coast along in coming to church, you know, and going through the motions of, you know, going to growth group during the week or prayer meeting or things like that. But all the while, you've lost your first love. Your zeal for the gospel is not as strong as it should be. The Apostle James has an incredibly practical thing to say in this regard. He says in the opening chapter of his letter, and, and it's so familiar to us that I think we miss the shock value of it. So let me try and get this across. You ready? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers. You know what he says next? What should we consider pure joy? Coming to church every weekend? Seeing the blessing of God? Seeing his favour rest upon us? Knowing his blessing, maybe materially? with prosperity or health or healing. No, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. You see the shock? Why? Why would that be joyful? That's the thing you want to escape. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So if you know that, you can be joyful. Because you know that there's a purpose. And then immediately he goes on to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Now, it's an incredible promise that James makes here, isn't it? Especially in the light of everything we've just seen about how secret wisdom is. How, you know, you've got to mine the depths of the earth and you can't be found. Eagles don't see it. Lions can't see it. Who can find it? But with the death and resurrection of Jesus... And his ascension into heaven, though, the search for wisdom doesn't have to be a secret anymore. Because the mystery of God has been gloriously revealed in Christ. Paul says this in Colossians 2. In him, that's Jesus, are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's like a treasure chest right in front of you. You only have to open the lid. The treasure chest is Christ and inside is all wisdom. The really remarkable thing, though, is that the way to know and understand and truly appreciate this truth, right, comes through suffering. It comes through trial. It comes through pain. 
It's by having the things of this world which we're tempted to rely on, which we're tempted to put our faith in, stripped away from us so that we're left depending on Christ, so that we can sing as we just sung, yet not I but Christ in me. You see what a dangerous thing it is we just sang? (laughs) It's saying, Lord, have all of those distractions stripped away from me that I might know and cherish Christ. Until we hate our sin and we cherish him. Until we put to death the things that our earthly natures want to do. And in their their place, we clothe ourselves with the virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bearing with each other, forgiving whatever grievances we may have against each other. Forgiving in the same way as the Lord God Almighty has first forgiven us. And then Paul says, above all of this, sincerely love one another such that we are brought to complete unity. If God feels distant, guess who moved? If God feels distant, brother, sister, maybe it's just because you're not putting to death the things that need to be put to death. You're not clothing yourselves with the things you need to put on. I was talking to my son-in-law on the phone during the week One of the happiest guys I know. He asked me a question which really stopped me in my tracks. We've been talking for about half an hour. And uh, it was getting to that point in the conversation where I was expecting him to say, so Mark, what can I pray for you about? Which, Which he did. But before he said that, he said, Mark, what are you thankful for? Now, I just finished sharing with him all of the things that I was concerned and that I was worried about. And all of a sudden I realised I was scratching to be thankful. Thankfulness, did you know, is one of the key evidences of being filled with God's spirit. You might be surprised by me saying that, but it's what the Bible says. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfulness, friends, is one of the key signs that you are filled with God's Spirit. Ingratitude is one of the key signs that you're not. Would you say that thankfulness characterises your faith as a Christian? Maybe I should ask, would your family say that you are the kind of person who is thankful? If you've experienced even just some of the riches of the wisdom which are to be found in Christ, surely you would be. If you're lacking in wisdom, though, can I just say, don't be discouraged. Don't feel condemned. You only need to ask and the Lord will generously provide you 
with everything you need. But, can I just say, in asking, there's no doubt that he will give it to you. But it comes with a warning. (laughs) Be careful. Be careful because praying for wisdom may very well coincide with the Lord extending or maybe even deepening your trial so that you might know that pure joy (laughs) that James talks about. All of a sudden, I think lots of us are going, eh, maybe just a little bit of wisdom. (laughs) That sounds wrong, doesn't it? Because the Lord is, isn't the Lord, the immediate question, isn't the Lord supposed to relieve our suffering? Well, sometimes, yes. But more often not. James doesn't talk about God stopping our trials. James talks about God giving us the wisdom to endure them. James doesn't talk about God stopping our trials, friends. He does talk about the sure and certain promise of giving us the wisdom to endure them. You see the difference? That's the underlying rationale as to why he says we should consider our trials to be pure joy. Because they're doing something. The master divine physician is cutting away sin so that we might cherish Christ and find all of the joy of the riches of the wisdom that is to be found in him. He does this not because he delights in seeing us suffer or in pain. No, we can view our suffering this way because we know it has a purpose. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that we've been able to hear you speak to us through your word this morning. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that In the midst of our trial, Lord, as tender and as sensitive as that is, that we will trust you, that we will believe in you, and that we will not waver in doubt or unbelief. We will not be like the double-minded man who is unstable in all he does, like the waves of the ocean tossed back and forth but that we would hold on to you as an anchor for our souls. Lord, we are humbled and in awe of your sovereign power over us. That in the midst of trial, you are doing something good. You're making us persevere and you're transforming us into the image and likeness of Christ. Lord, we pray for each other this week that you will give us wisdom. Wisdom to endure trial and to be transformed into the image and likeness of your Son. Lord, may we find in Christ the treasures of wisdom. May he be precious to us. May we cherish him. And Lord, give us the grace to shun evil and to forsake it. Thank you for hearing us, Lord, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to hearing God's word, let's stand and sing, shall we?